Hi, everybody. It's The Rock and Roll Chef, and welcome to the official podcast of The Rock and Roll Kitchen. This episode is brought to you by the award-winning Totally Chipotle Foods. All natural, no preservatives, no high-fructose corn sweetener, the best brand in Chipotle, Totally Chipotle. And also by the Rock and Roll Kitchen pop-up show space, a traveling trade show featuring food, music, product showcasing, and retail opportunities. For more information, visit rockandrollkitchen.com. Come on up to my kitchen. You don't know what you're missing. Jerry White in my motor. Every time, come on over. Said, boo, we've been the fire. Our guest today is Gordon Firemark, the podcast lawyer, a Los Angeles-based attorney specializing in film, television, theater, and new media. Gordon also helps clients with developing, financing, producing, and distributing content. He teaches entertainment law at Columbia College Hollywood and also contracts with Pepperdine Law School. And he's the author of the podcast, blog, new media, Producers Legal Survival Guide. Gordon is also a podcaster himself. Since 2009, he's produced and hosted Entertainment Law Update. Hey, Gordon, welcome to the Rock and Roll Kitchen podcast. Hi, Marty. Thanks for having me. Uh, we tried to do this before. I got sick as a dog, and I apologize for that because mm. I know you're a busy guy. You got this uh, very uh, efficient scheduling program, I've noticed. It's pretty rare because I deal with musicians and artists. Yeah. Well, you do too. <laughs> so, <laughs> come on. Who am I talking to? You know. Right. It's like you know, herding cats, whatever you want to say. Exactly. But, uh, but it's, it's nice to see that. Well, first, I want to say I'm coming to you from normal Illinois, and I'm here on business in a hotel. And who in the hell would call a town normal? By the way, I don't get that. <laughs> Sounds so like if you hear, hear some, <laughs> yeah, it's like these days, whatever that is. Uh, so if you hear a little bit of extraneous noise, uh, that's why. You're into a lot of different stuff, man. You got to be busy, busy, busy these days, Gordon, with deep fakes, copyright, streaming media, trademarks, Amazon brand registry, inter- everything, man. It's just the world is spinning so fast, it sure and is. so many knockoffs and copycats. I mean, you must be just incredibly busy. Yeah, things are busy. It's uh, you know the the old curse. May you live in interesting times, and <laughs> it's coming through. That's for sure. Obviously, you seem like you are into the arts, entertainment, all that kind of stuff. Versus, I mean, you could have gone into whatever you know, yeah. criminal law or something like that if you wanted to. Yeah, I was all about the entertainment industry before I ever went to law school. So for me, uh, law was a, a way to actually make a living doing stuff that I love. <laughs> well, that's. Supposed to be the definition of a successful career, right? Do something that you love and you never right. work a day in your life, they say. Absolutely. You know, I just saw something since we first scheduled this. Um, and we're going to talk about different. I have a few, a few trademarks myself, and I've been up against Food Network, Chipotle Mexican Grill. Uh, Gene Simmons had a little go around with the trademark office oh. <laughs> with one of my marks. Yeah, so, so I've, I've had to learn. I've had to acquire some knowledge, okay? whether I wanted to or not, but I've learned a lot about it. But something I saw since we scheduled this uh, podcast was a trademark on a color. And so, I don't know if it's, it's true or not. Somebody's saying the estate, whoever controls Prince's estate, Paisley Park, is filing for a trademark on a certain shade of purple. Have you heard this, Gordon? I have heard that, and there are there is a precedent for a color being a, uh, a trademark. There was a uh, case maybe... Not case, but a, a trademark registered maybe, I want to say about 20 years ago, for a particular shade of green that was used for a dry cleaner's uh, press 
cover, you know, the pad that goes over the press to... to uh, wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, this particular brand had always made them in this particular shade of green, and then um, they registered the trademark, and then, of course, somebody was knocking them off trying to make their version of the cover also the same color of green and causing confusion in the marketplace. So, there is, there is precedent for that. Um, I don't know that the Paisley Park situation is uh, quite the same, but... Uh, yeah, I think they 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 certainly have you know there is a basis for them to do that. We'll see what happens. I guess I don't see how somebody could do that, but you know I'm I'm not a lawyer, so it's I well mean, you know there you know what a trademark is is some distinctive um, design or or in this case color that is you know become known as the identifier for this thing. So um, you know again I don't know the details of the the Paisley Park registration, but assuming that that col- that particular shade of purple is used in um, uh, uh, you know connection with video and, and audio entertainment content or something like that they would want to be able to make sure they can keep other people from using it in a way that <laughs> can be confusing I guess but what about all the colorblind people yeah. out there for starters <laughs> but my point is you know if I said look it's purple and I showed you five different shades which one are you going to tell me is trademarked I mean the average Joe how are you going to know I mean really I, Good question. Unless it's, yeah. I mean, I, how are you going to enforce that? Even, I mean, have you ever tried to color match something? Like go to Home <clears> Depot <throat> or wherever and you've got a paint chip or something, right? It's really hard to do to, if you got a wall that needs painted or something, and you, yeah. a paint chip. It, it's, it's, there's so many different, almost infinite shades of colors. So anyway, I just was really yeah. <laughs> intrigued about that one. How you can copyright or trademark a color, I guess. But would a trademark be different than a copyright? Yeah, for a trademark. Co- trademark. Go ahead. I mean, in, in this in this regard, because my understanding is a trademark is to protect a name, right, or a logo. Um, whereas a copyright is more of a body of work, uh, mm. like you know, a photograph or um, yeah, some dialogue, a script, or something. Is that sure. close to being accurate? Well, uh, yeah. So let me let me lay it out for you a little bit. So trademarks are. Uh, Basically, any any distinctive uh, indicator of source or origin. So, you know, if you see a red triangle in the upper left corner of a box of cookies or crackers, you know that's coming from a particular company, Nabisco, right? And um, so, it, in that instance, it's the positioning of the red triangle, and the, and the color red is a component of that one as well, actually. Um, and so, it, it's a it's an indicator of the brand who who created this product who who is taking ownership of or claiming ownership or responsibility for this product copyright is about protecting the original creative expression of authors so people who write songs write music uh, write screenplays paint paintings make photographs films you name it and so copyright doesn't protect something as basic as a color or a shape but the aggregated sort of combination of those things to convey a message, I guess you could say. So we don't protect ideas or facts under copyright law. Under trademark, we can protect um, brands and symbols that can be used to, you know, essentially point to the source of something. And patent is the third element of yeah, exactly. And the patent is the third identifier for uh, for intellectual property. That's to cover you know inventions, processes, designs, and things like that. It's interesting. I mean, I think it is, and it's also. Easy to get confused. And we're going to talk about a little bit uh, YouTube as well. Yeah. And, and, and how they enforce or don't enforce copyrights and trademarks. 
I don't know if you've been down that road yet with any of your clients <laughs> or any of your projects. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it kind of a moving target in your opinion? Kind of kind of changing a little bit you based know, on what day and what year it is, or no? I don't want to go that far. Uh, you know, it, it's a little it's complicated, um, and YouTube is is uh, you know straddling a line between encouraging creators of content and also protecting. Uh, creators of prior content that have ownership interests and financial interests, frankly, in protecting their work. And uh, you right. know, YouTube was involved in, in a very big, long-lasting lawsuit went on for nine or ten years before it was resolved finally. And um, so they, you know, there are clear parameters that they have to operate under. And uh, no, uh, yeah, I understand that. Although yeah. with, with all the streaming media and streaming music, mm-hmm. you know, p- people are wondering out loud, why can YouTube do it, but somebody else can't? And well, YouTube versa. pays for the music it uses on its site. Ah. Um, <laughs> That's why they can do it. <laughs> you sound like you might be talking about Spotify a little bit or some of the other streaming stuff where the no, artists no. say they don't make any money at all so, from, so from plays. Lay, right. So lay out the scenario that you're, you're talking about for me. Okay. As the owner of a few trademarks, you know that it's mm-hmm. I, I'm compelled to protect my mark if yeah. I see an infringement, right? Yep. And in fact, I could risk losing my mark if I don't take action against infringers, correct? Right. Yes. So, um, and I do Google alerts, and, mm-hmm. I, and I hear about stuff here and there, and I'll see something that's a direct infringement. Sure. I don't know what you do with your business, but do, is mm-hmm. your first step just to cease and desist and or go through a complaint form on yep. YouTube mm-hmm. with the, the infringing uh, content? Now, I did one of those with, mm-hmm. with a mark under the trademark and they spit back, we don't enforce trademark uh, disputes. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, however, why is there a, a button you can collect, tr- you can you can uh, choose trademark violation on their complaint form if they don't? To make it real easy for them disputes. to send you that message that says we don't do that, you can deal with it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. It's just it's just a big F you, but worded nicely. Is that what you're well, saying, no, Gordon? I mean, well, I mean, look, look, the fact of it is, the, under, for copyright material, there is a provision that requires companies that have that provide an internet service like, like YouTube and accept third-party content. If they want to be immune from lawsuits for copyright infringement, they have to have a mechanism in place right. to take down work when somebody complains. So that's why they set up that form. But that is not about trademarks. That's only about copyrighted material. This is the D- Digital oh, yeah. Millennium Copyright Act. So trademark is a matter of if you own a trademark and somebody infringes it, you have to notify the infringer. Um, and YouTube doesn't have any liability for merely allowing a video to, to happen on its site that happens to use an, uh, you know, make an infringing use of, of someone else's trademark. There's no third-party liability there. So your complaint is against the, the infringer, and you have the rights under the law to sue that infringer. Absolutely. Send them a cease and desist letter. Yeah. If they don't stop, you sue them. Yeah, that's so. always the last recourse, I mean, for, for most <laughs> right. people. But, you know, it gets ugly and it of gets course. expensive. And, uh, you know, I would say this in this day and age, come on. I mean, remember, I don't know how old you are, but not that long ago before the Internet. (laughs) Speak speak up, Sonny. I can't quite hear you at this moment. Go ahead. Uh, As long as all the all the vital parts are working, Gordon. Know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But remember back in the day before the Internet really came into its own where to do a trademark search, you had to hire some paralegal or somebody in uh, D.C., Right, and they would go to the Library of Congress and sort through all the magazines and newspapers and books, whatever they could find. Right, 
related to the mark that you wanted to register. But now, and for a few years now, just do a Google search and you're going to find out pretty quickly what's out there, right? Who owns which domain, what kind of public content. It's, it's pretty hard to ignore um, with a Google search what's happening. So if somebody has taken the steps to, to register a, a URL or they have content, videos, whatever, right? Yeah. It's not like the old days. It's pretty instantaneous. So if somebody sees all this stuff, it's page one ranking, not obscure, and they go ahead and infringe it anyway. Come on now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of folks that just don't bother to do any kind of search at all. Hey, I came up with a great idea for a name for my thing, and I'm going to put it out there. And That's then crazy. they realize when they try to register a domain and they end up having to do the, the .co instead of the .com or something like that or, or whatever. And they may not they still may not realize there's a trademark issue there and and the fact of it is just because you have a registered domain name doesn't mean you have a trademark or vice versa and um you know some of the early internet domain name trademark cases were you know uh uh, one of the fast food giants would register the other one's domain so they couldn't get it (laughs) those kinds of things oh yeah Um, cyber squatters cyber squatters squatters. exactly yeah oh yeah uh, i heard that I heard they passed a law against that, preventing that. That's right. And somebody was making pretty good money back in the day, you know, Coca-Cola.com, just because yeah. the, the real Coca-Cola was too slow on the draw to figure out what was happening, or just mm-hmm. one example. Then I, I understand they passed some laws to protect the, the, the legal uh, mark owners and the brand owners. Yeah, there's, a, there's an anti-cyber so squatting law out there. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. How, how, how old is that, I wonder? When did I that get that passed? I think that came into... I, that was the mid '90s. I mean, it's it's been there for a long time. Yeah, yeah interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of of brands, and I could go on and on, but the last thing I'll say about mine is, which is tricky. Um, some of my brands they have they have the the phrase rock and roll in them. All right. Yeah. Now you can't use an ampersand to register a URL. Correct. They don't allow it. Mm-hmm. So. You have three different ways to spell rock and roll, letter N in the middle or le- mm-hmm. letter A and D. So if I say to you the brand is rock and roll chef, that's one of my marks, yeah. you don't know how I spelled it. You don't know how I spelled it just by me mm-hmm. saying it to you. So there's no discernible difference between those three spellings, correct? That's correct. So, yeah. So when somebody is um, using a knockoff of the variation on there, it does cause confusion, at least with the audio part of it. Because yeah. of the, the three different variations. The way I explain it, I'm not an attorney, but you know, if, if somebody's got a burger restaurant and, the, and they spell McDonald's with a Z on the end of it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they're probably, yes. probably going to hear from McDonald's attorneys yeah. saying you're right. causing confusion about your burger joint being us. Just because you put a Z on the end of McDonald's right. doesn't the doctrine, change the fact. Yeah. The doctrine of trademark is that it's about whether there's a likelihood of confusion, not about whether it's an identical match. So, yeah, you're absolutely Boom. right. If if, uh, if somebody uses the N instead of the and or the, uh, or the you know, whatever variation, yeah. maybe they don't even do it. Maybe it's just rock roll chef. Um, um, I think that's yeah, an that, infringement. Well, that's, that's different. I, I, have a little, I have a little kiss story for you yeah. <laughs> regarding <laughs> one of my marks with, uh, you know, I, I know their manager, uh, Doc McGee. Uh, I met him through one of his artists, and he was interested in the the cooking music format that I do. But um, Gene Simmons, I guess, is, you know, he's a pretty savvy business guy Mm -hmm. and uh, salesman, all that. And he tried to register some form of um, 
rock and roll cooking or something that the mm-hmm. trademark office rejected because it was too similar to my mark. So I didn't have oh, to lift a finger on that one. <laughs> yeah, yay. Suck it, Gene. Go suck it. <laughs> Kiss this, Gene. That's what I should I don't said. know if Gene Simmons is somebody uh, you want to say that to. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't care. I oh, mean, I don't sure. care. It's, 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 I got the registered right. mark. I've had it for, I've had it forever. He can yeah. do what he wants, you know. Right. Well, so, but, so um, you're, 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 yeah. We're, there's a distinction here between the registration. He was trying to register a trademark and was rejected because they discovered a confusingly similar mark already registered. Um, what correct. often happens though is somebody just comes out and starts a business and doesn't bother to think about it, and maybe even adopts that same thing, you know, rock and roll kitchen or rock and rock and roll uh, uh, cooking uh, dot com yeah. or something like that. And, and if you haven't already, yes. you know, been out there. Yeah, it's it's incumbent on you to go tell them, hey, stop it! You're you're infringing my mark. It's confusingly similar, and if you don't stop, I'll have to sue you. And yeah, uh, and then yeah, yeah unfortunately, yeah. you do actually have to sue them when they don't do it. Yeah, and you know, if, if they can, who knows? That's a, that's a whole different thing. I've I've, yeah. I've been down this road a few times before, and usually when I show them all the documentation, I'm just talking about my stuff. Yeah, nobody say, wants oh, yeah, to fight okay. if they can avoid it. No, if unless they're a, a stupid musician. <laughs> who, yeah. who just doesn't just I don't know it also taught me a lot about the difference between um, Canadian trademarks and mm-hmm. marks in the, in the United States you've been down that road too Gordon international trademarks haven't had that, that much dealing with the, the difference between Canadian and you the similarities far outweigh the differences but yeah there are some um, they don't tricky, tricky they areas. don't on, they don't honor each other's trademarks is my understanding no, yeah. So, if, you, if you're registered in one country, it doesn't mean you have uh, much protection in others. There's a little bit, but uh, um, yeah, yeah, no trademarks are territorial. Much. So you've got to register. Yeah, yeah. Where you... It's it's really interesting. I mean, and that's I guess we might as well talk about this too, which because something I'm learning about that I never had to know before, but now I do. But the Madrid Protocol is one mm-hmm. that's related to international. There's also one called I think the um, Nice Accord. It's in the same ballpark. And yeah, man, these are, let me tell you. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was saying it's. I've I've had enough experience with the USPTO mm-hmm. and, and their and their workers there, and it's it's pretty solid. You know, it's not that hard yeah. to understand. Not that many twists and turns. And by the way, let me give a shout out to the employees of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. They are paid for by uh, people who are submitting their patents and trademarks. Yeah. So they're not, they're not paid agency. by the government. Yeah, and you know what? They are the nicest <laughs> government people you will ever deal with, in my experience. No lie. Every time. Like, wow. I can't believe these people work for the government. Well, like but any they don't, agency, you're going to find the good ones and the bad ones. And <laughs> I've crossed paths with a few of the bad ones, too. But have you? Have for you? the most part, you're I, right. I never, yeah, they're just super. It's like surprisingly, you get ready for this beatdown government style, right? This yep. bureaucratic stuff, and it's never happened. Although I would say, uh, having dealt with the Canadian trademark office, it's totally different <laughs> experience. Yeah. Go USA. I mean, up there. I mean, I, I've I've had reason to call one of them. Okay, I don't know yeah. if you ever have. Hey, how's it going? Hey, you know? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, it's it's a bit of a disaster. I got to tell you, this guy tells me uh. up there. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, <laughs> I think I got the accent right too. Yeah, it could be like um, anywhere from eight to eighteen months before your application even hits the examiner's desk, eh? <laughs> it's like, whoa. Wow. You know, in the in the United States, it's I think if it goes well, no oppositions, it's about a year. What a year and two months, something like that. 
to get a, yeah, a registration? So the typical timeline for a U.S. trademark these days seems to be three or four months before you get something back from them saying, we got it, we're checking it out, we'll be in touch. And usually around the sixth month is when, if there's any objection or, or reason that they need more information or something like that, you'll hear that from them. Uh, then they right. give you six months to deal with that and respond. And uh, and then after that, uh, after that paperwork comes through and they've dealt with it, um, they yeah, there's an, 60 days before they publish it, and then they publish it, and then you have to wait another 60 days. You know, so yeah, it takes anywhere from six months to a year to get a registration pushed through in most instances. Speaking of which, the podcast lawyer, mm-hmm. um, how long ago did you file for that mark, and when do you think you're going to be able to put that little circle R after that phrase? I have not yet filed for that circle R registration because the podcast lawyer is a very descriptive brand, isn't it? Ah, it tells you exactly what I do and why I'm here. So I am building up secondary meaning in the mind of the public. That's one of the bases for what we call acquired distinctiveness so that I can register. And uh, so I'm I'm in no big hurry. Uh, Anybody wants to come and infringe on the name, the trademark lawyer, I've got you know, I'm I'm the one who started using it first, and I can uh, uh, make my case there, and uh, I'll duke it out on state law and common law grounds if I have to. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I was talking about the I was talking about the podcast lawyer, though, not the trademark right. lawyer. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm oh, sorry. Okay, same. Yeah, the podcast lawyer. That's what I meant to say. Sorry. So, <laughs> so basically, they they and and you know, it's I think I got grandfathered in with Rock and Roll Chef and Rock and Roll Kitchen. I'm not sure somebody could get it now because for the same reason, it sounds kind of generic, right? It's not really. Well, it, it, it describes, um, but you know, it's suggestive. It's not really just, you know, you're not cooking rock and roll <laughs> and you're not <laughs> playing musical pots and pans. I presume you're not playing musical pots and pans. So, Oh, oh hold, just wait a second there, mister. Uh, we do combine. Well, I, I've done a lot of trade shows and one of them was a national restaurant show. And yeah, the drummer wanted to set up a little pots oh, and okay. pan kit. Yeah. There you go. But so, for, for an entertainment yeah, but, uh, product or service like like a podcast or, or a television show or something like that, this title is you know pretty. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, it's suggestive of what you do, but it's not purely descriptive. And so I think that yeah, you got registered because it was deemed to be distinctive enough to qualify. I guess I'm 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 happy about it. That's for sure. Yeah. Until <laughs> until unless I have to start fighting on it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. going after infringers. And, you know, like yeah. I said, I've had a few go-arounds. Um, Food Network is one of them. Um, yeah. I have another one with a, Ch- a Chipotle product. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to say, in my in my view, some of these legal firms that are contracted by these corporations, they're just looking for busy work. They're just trying to bulk up their invoicing, as far as I can tell. There's they're just, you know, they just do this general blanket stuff and send out infringements mm-hmm. and uh, – the one I had to do with Chipotle Mexican Grill, my brand is totally Chipotle. Yeah. It's a line of uh, Chipotle flavored products. And they wanted me to abandon a mark or a part of the mark category for frozen foods or something. Yeah. Which I don't make frozen foods and I don't care. But yeah. it kind of seemed to me like they're, maybe they're trying to pave the way to release a line of frozen foods from Chipotle Mexican sure. Grill. That's what it seemed to me. But it was just like, are you kidding me? So that wasn't a that wasn't a big legal action. It's like, okay, fine, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I'll see you that. But but it just seemed. I've yet to see any uh, frozen products from Chipotle Mexican Grill. I'll tell you that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I hope I hope you don't have any reason to start going down the road with the Madrid Protocol with this country <laughs> because. Oh my God! I got 
if I had not gotten the number for the U.S. rep for the Madrid Protocol mm-hmm. from the USPTO, I would have thought I was talking to a um, a rap hip hop DJ maybe. The yeah. way this woman, <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're affiliated with the U.S. Really? It's like wow, I couldn't even believe it, and just no information really to take away, just more confusion than than not, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's just insane, man. I mean, she said, yeah, it's about a hundred dollars to uh, if you already got a registered mark, and mm-hmm. it'll protect you and all this, but that is not true at all, from what I could find. <laughs> no, it's not. You, 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 no, no. So here it is, boys and girls, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, Gordon, but if you want to protect your already registered. USPTO mark, you have to file a, a separate fee in every country where you want protection. That's correct. That's my understanding. In Swiss <laughs> francs, no less. And yeah. um, and then then the then the the Madrid Protocol people wants a hundred dollars on top of that. Why I don't know to go with that. So yeah, you can end up spending some sort, yeah. something. But yeah. if you want protection and even. Mm-hmm. And I think you had to put down a, a deposit of like 5,000 francs to even open an account with them, I think. But uh, it gets really pricey, really pricey, boys and girls, if you're looking for international protection, as far as I can tell. So you correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're, you're, uh, that's that's my understanding as well. And uh, I wasn't aware of the deposit requirement, and, and that may be something new or maybe something I just haven't ever encountered. But uh, uh, yeah, it's an expensive thing. Of course, you know, losing your brand because there's other competitors out there with the same or similar... Uh, brands and right. then not being able to do business under your name in those other countries can really True. cost you too. So it's uh, you know, a business and, decision. And there's so and there's so many variations now on URLs, right? There's yep. dot food, dot com, dot net, uh, dot biz, dot music, I think. So people can just register whatever extension right. they want, apparently. So mm-hmm. man, you could you you could go crazy fast <clears> trying <throat> to keep track of all that thing. You try trying to keep track of all that. Yep. internationally in my opinion so that's just crazy have you dealt yet with um in your business with the amazon brand registry gordon any of that only peripherally i'm i'm i've seen what it can what, what I can, i've seen what happens in there and it's sort of amazon's way of dealing with uh non-trademark trademarks <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting yep. it uh yep. and uh and dealing with the the counterfeit stuff that that <laughs> finds its way on Amazon very quickly a lot of the time. So, uh, yeah, you, you, yeah, you no still, kidding. as a consumer, you have to be really careful because you might be think, you, think you're buying one thing when, in fact, you're buying a Chinese knockoff that looks just like it in the picture. And even when it arrives, it may look like the right thing, but then doesn't deliver on the promise of the brand that, you know, is, it's, is standing it's crazy. behind it. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, you know, I, I, you know had, you, uh, I had to, f- yes. Go ahead. I was going to say that my, uh, one example I'll talk to you, you know, since you, we're talking about rock and roll stuff, you know, the Shure SM58 microphone, classic yep. rock and roll yes. handheld ball, ball uh, microphone, right? This is the yep. workhorse microphone of the, of the live sound music industry. And you can go on Amazon and type in Shure SM58 and you can get one for 50, 40, 40 or 50 bucks. But what you're getting isn't actually a Shure SM58. It's a Chinese microphone Ooh. labeled Shure SM58. And unfortunately, <laughs> no way to tell until you plug it in or take it apart and look at the parts. And uh, yeah, that's a classic Damn. example of where brand registry is, you know, always struggling to uh, knock those things down. Yeah, no kidding. And good luck policing it overseas, right? Right. Uh, exactly. You know, you're going to spend more 
just doing that, then it probably would have been just to let it go, probably. And, well, the problem is then you've got a crappy quality microphone out there and, and people are seeing it says sure on it and they're going, oh, maybe these sure microphones aren't as good as they used to be. And true. Very, that very hurts true. The business. So you have to police yeah. this is tarnishment of the brand. Speaking of gear, um, you, you you said you use a, a product or a service called Zoom. What kind of microphone do you use, Gordon? When you're doing well, your Zoom podcast? is an online yeah yeah Zoom is an online service for uh, video conferencing, and I do a lot of video conferencing uh, from my home office here in uh, in LA with clients all over the world, and it's great to be able to look at them and see them and share screens and that kind of stuff. So that's what I use Zoom for, and uh, some folks like to use it as a way of connecting for these kinds of recordings. Um, for my microphone, when I do podcasting, my microphone uh, currently is a Heil PR40, and wow. uh, a, a pretty pretty good workhorse podcast microphone. Um, I think that's the Illinois, Illinois brand, I think, from I State, think, Illinois. Yeah, I, I think they're in... I think so. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I might, and a great brand and, and nice sounding. I think it sounds good. It's good for my voice anyway. I also have a Rode, uh, uh, Rode pod mic on the desk behind me, and it, it's also really nice sounding. I use that sort of for some video live streaming and things like that. And I'm running into, I used to run it with a mixer and all kinds of outboard gear and compressors and, and uh, into a recording, uh, separate recording device, a Zoom uh, H6 recorder. Now I'm using a Rode uh, Rodecaster. Ah, and uh, I've seen I've seen those. It's it's great. I mean, you and I are talking through it right now. You're you're coming in on my phone line using my cell phone connected nice. by Bluetooth, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm recording multi-track recording. So uh, you'll get my voice, your voice, and the mix all together, and uh, um, it allows me to punch in sound effects. And uh, I do my show live <laughs> to drive. So when I yeah. record, I start the the intro music, and then I just go until I'm done and punch the outro music and we're done and uh, upload the file nice. and we're good to go. So I like, I like hearing, I like hearing about people, people's gear, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. There's a lot of, well I do it's, and everybody wants a good product. Right. And I mm -hmm. just don't like people being on their phone if I can avoid it because yeah. for remote stuff, it just takes, it just detracts from it. I think people right. ultimately don't mind as long as it's interesting, but still, if you have, yeah. a, if you have a way to get the best quality, why not? Um, <laughs> Other th couple things I want to talk to you about, and the, one of the first sure. conversations we had was, um, I guess it's all settled now, but this copyright debate uh, about a spirit song and Led Zeppelin's "Stairway to Heaven." Yeah. Do you want to speak? You want to speak a little bit? About, I, I heard it's resolved. Case closed, and I don't know <laughs> yeah, who, who well, won or, or lost. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, go, go, yeah, Gordon. It's funny. Uh, it's funny. I'm trying to remember the the outcome of the case, but basically. Uh, a band called Spirit was uh, actually opening act for Aerosmith, um, not Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, sorry, back in those days, uh, before Stairway to Heaven was written and produced. And Spirit had a song called Taurus that had a similar arpeggio structure uh, to what later became uh, Stairway to Heaven. And so one of the uh, heirs of one of the members of Spirit came out a few years ago now. It's been probably three or four years and sued uh, the Led Zeppelin folks over the copyright and the alleged copyright infringement in uh, in Stairway to Heaven of that Spirit song Taurus. And uh, the case went all through trial and appeals and the whole routine here in, in uh, California. 
a federal court here in California, and uh, the original jury verdict was in favor of Aerosmith. Uh, I keep saying Aerosmith. Was in favor of Led Zeppelin, and uh, uh, that was appealed, and it has gone all the way, and it, it is it was in uh, Led Zeppelin's favor every step of the way. So now let's hear a little bit of both of these songs. Okay, we're back. All right, Gordon, I got to say, okay, what do you say? Is this enforceable? Does the spirit have a legitimate case or was it frivolous? I, well, I don't know that it was frivolous. I think there might have been some argument or basement, a basis for the idea that, um, uh, that the, the members of Led Zeppelin, having heard the spirit song along the way, might have copied it to a certain extent. But uh, in, the court, in the course of the lawsuit, the... Uh, um, you know the, the the jury and the judges concluded that it was not it didn't rise to the level of infringement so i'm hesitant to call a lawsuit frivolous unless it's just completely out of left field uh here you know there was enough for the court to go all the way through a trial and end up on appeal and um, experts testified on both sides and you know the music copyright area is an interesting area right now um we're we're seeing more and more suits based on sort of you know small components or or elements of a prior song and and uh, claimants saying well wait a minute that came from me you don't get to use it without my permission those kinds of things Katy Perry was on the uh, wrong end of a verdict against her recently uh, that's going up on appeal right now and and uh, there's some other interesting developments in the space there's actually one story I just talked about on my podcast is a, a, a lawyer and a 
musician slash computer programmer, developed a, a bit of software that was able to very fast, uh, like almost like hackers do brute force password cracking, they were able to create a recording. They created a hard drive with a recording of every possible permutation of a 12-note um, uh, chromatic scale. You know, basically, they've, they've now they've created every possible melody that could ever be created mathematically, <laughs> and uh, and fixed it in a tangible form so that it can be copyrighted. And they're releasing it into the public domain under a special form of Creative Commons license, a no rights wow. reserved license. <coughs> basically, basically trying to poke poke holes in the idea that you know um, that there's such a thing as copying <laughs> in melody and music. Uh, I don't well, know that it's going to fly, but. I, I, man, it's my, my brain hurts just trying to consider that one, Gordon. I mean, <laughs> right. seriously. I mean, what is the word of infinite? I mean, what is the definition? I mean, to me, that means well, you can arrange arrange notes in an infinite amount of sequences, and that's the whole point it, it, of creating music. Yeah, but it, it, but it really isn't infinite. If you have, you know, a, a phrase of music is generally, what, eight bars long, and you've got 12 notes in the chromatic scale possible, then there's really only right. a finite number of combinations of uh, you know eight beats times twelve notes and whatever, so they they apparently have done it, and I don't think there's anybody out there challenging <laughs> the math on the subject. Wow, They're, the challenges are about whether or not a machine created thing is even copyrightable. <laughs> so, well, right now um, we're gonna we're gonna play. Yeah, who, who knows? AI is another conversation. We're gonna play right. a couple more things, and we're gonna see. And this one, we do know the outcome. The loser of this lawsuit wrote a song about losing the lawsuit. What's your professional opinion? Knockoff or 
not a knockoff. That's a, that should be your new your new topic on your podcast, Gordon. Knockoff, you know, not a knockoff knock or not. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, yeah, that's great. I might take that. I'll pay you. You should. Uh, yeah, checks no, in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, at least you're. Uh, is it a knockoff? You know, knockoff has a connotation of some sort of willful bad intent in it, and so I don't like the phrase knockoff. Is it? Is it an infringement? Well, the court said yes. The the jury in that case, or, or the finder of fact, I guess, said yes. Um, and ultimately, that you know, when you when you're getting into the question of whether something is infringing of copyright, you have to decide: is it a copy? And the way we establish that something is a copy is by juxtaposing how much similarity there is between the two things and how much access the alleged infringer had to the original work, the old work, and so. In that case, if I recall correctly, the um, was it the Chiffons or the Shirelles, whoever it was who had he's so fine. Um, Shirelles, they, I think. Yeah, they they were you know they proved look this was a top forty radio uh, uh, song for years and years during the sixties, at a time when George Harrison was very active in the music community, you might say, <laughs> right in the sixties as a Beatle yeah. and writing songs. Yeah. And so it's pretty hard to fathom that he wouldn't have heard that song during those days. But here it was, you know, 30, 40 years later, he writes, um, my sweet Lord. And you know, there was, there was no argument that he intentionally went out and, and, Oh, I know this, that that's a great melody. I'm going to use it. It just came into his head. And, you know, ultimately, at, at at trial or in the course of the lawsuit, it, it became pretty clear that the similarity was enough, based on the fact that he must have had that access to conclude that yes, it was a copy, although it was unintentional. It was in fact a copy, and that happens a lot, I think. Um, All right. Well, there, there's a good segue. I'm going to play a song here. Um, Littleton is an English artist. I don't have it right <clears throat> now. And then to see, you get big points if you tell me who appears to have um, I don't want to say knocked off anymore after hearing you speak mm. but who was inspired <laughs> by this song this is the Bad Penny Blues Sans affair, French for you know things that are just naturally part of the scene, and uh, you know a blues progression, a blues riff is really not something that any one person can claim ownership of. It shows up in song after song after song after song. You know, there's a basic what is it eight bar uh, uh, blues combination that has become I would elemental. In lots and lots of different kinds of music, I, I, you know, so asking me to single out one song that was uh, inspired by Bad Penny Blues, I think there's thousands of songs that have been. Well, there's one. There's one in particular, and uh, it's to me really obvious. Uh, mo- more in the production value and the arrangement, yeah. Gordon, I would say. Then, yeah. but it's to me a straight up knockoff. Do you know a song I'm talking about? It's by the I, Beatles. I don't. Re- refresh my memory. Lady Madonna. 
Lady Madonna, of course, yes. So McCartney's, uh, you know, that is a, a, exactly right. It's, it, I guess it's a 12-bar blues riff. And um, uh, I think I think what the complaint there was was about the way the the piano and the drums were mixed, sounding and very performed. much like. And, yeah, well, and performed, that's yeah. true. Yeah, um, and the, so it was like as much the about snare. the production as it was about the composition. Yeah, although although I wouldn't say the composition was anywhere close, really. But he definitely borrowed the feel, the vibe. Yeah, well, of that right. song. You, you take that basic definitely a, a twelve bar blue thing, blues thing, and then you write a set of lyrics that that works with it, and yeah. a melody to overlie that. And uh, you know, yeah, I think you're. It's foundational. You know, there's another song. I I, I think it ended up in court as well. And um, it was by the Hollies, mm-hmm. and it's the air, the air that I breathe, uh, which was co- one of the writers was the guy. He also did it Never Rains in Southern California. I forget his name right now. Uh, who also wrote me. that song? <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm connected with him on LinkedIn. I can't remember okay. um, what the heck is his name. Anyway, um, I think it went to court. There's a song by Radiohead called Creep, oh. which is pretty much exactly the same chord progression okay exactly the same but you know i mean it gets into this whole subjective thing right gordon about okay well same chord progression all these different songs over and over and over um which is pretty common right and not just blues we're talking pop rock stuff too because blues are are really common you know that's that's almost like boilerplate at this point right you know 12 bar yeah. blues whatever that's that doesn't change but some of the some of the core progressions on some of those songs there's one by the cars um yeah. just what i needed i don't mind you hanging out wasting all my yeah. time and then oh please say to me mm-hmm. same core progression man exactly the same so, yeah, so i didn't this hear is any. one of the things yeah this is really one of the things that that musicologists and experts in in copyright infringement cases and juries in these cases have to really wrestle with is you know at what point does something like a chord progression again you've only got so many chords in in the musical spectrum that you can play and you know at what point do those things become component parts you know almost like the numbers in a mathematical equation you can't you can't copyright the number three (laughs) right right (laughs) i hope not i hope not who knows Right. Well, no, you, I mean, I'll tell you, you can't. But uh, <laughs> by, by saying that these sort of foundational musical components can't be, I mean, can be protected, you're basically saying nobody can use a chord progression. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to even try to remember my circle of fifths in, in music theory, but, you know, uh, you, let's say you have a chord progression that goes from, um, you know, one to the next to the next, you've got four chords together in a sequence. Well, taking that out of the musical lexicon altogether is is a pretty drastic step. And so I think that judges and juries and experts really have to look more deeply than just those elements and say it's it's about the way they're combined with other components that becomes copying. And uh, like a trademark, like a trademark. Well, with the col- the color, sure. shape, words, they all yeah. got to they all got to go together, right? right. In one yeah, specific the, sequence. Yeah. Yeah, so the threshold in copyright is originality. And just because you're the first person to record a song that has this particular sequence of chords laid out in a particular way, I don't know if that really is original or not. And and that's I'm not going to try to wrestle with that question myself. I think that's the thing that judges and juries have to decide on. And uh, it seems to be going you, both ways these days. And so 
it's I, an interesting time. <laughs> well, it is. And again, I'll say it again. You must be busy and getting busier all the time <laughs> with so many ways to distribute content like never before, yeah. right? And yes, so many people doing it. And it's like, how do you even control that? I've, I've, I've heard some uh, stand-up comedians say they get really upset, rightfully so, when people are <clears throat> using their phones to, to um, film, I don't want to say film, but videotape their mm-hmm. um their performances before they've really got them dialed in right they're still woodshedding yep. to a degree they're testing right. it out and they don't need somebody sending out to youtube or wherever these these bits that aren't really done yet they're just mm-hmm. you know they're they're doing dry runs and so i can see and but how do you prevent it i think i saw or i, I heard that when guns and roses did their reunion thing a couple three years ago yeah. at the mm-hmm. at the whiskey or something i can't remember where they, they confiscated everybody's cell phones. <laughs> yeah. All right. That yeah. was part of the admission. They had to hand them over. And they didn't right. want that, that getting out to anybody, which is a different thing. But maybe they maybe they felt like they might have been rusty and didn't, didn't want a bad performance to get out there. But, hey, you know, you, you, you deal with musicians. Some of them are absolutely horrible on stage. <laughs> they can't sing. They can't sing anymore right. if they ever could. And it's just lame as hell. And they don't want that getting out there. That hurts their ticket right. sales, right? That yeah. hurts their revenue by seeing mm-hmm. that. So it's back to YouTube. How do you enforce that stuff when it's somebody else, you know, filming and they could say, this is my original content, right? That's what copyright laws address. Yeah. If, your finger's on, if your finger's on the red button and you took the picture or shot the video, then by law, isn't that your copyright? Unless it's well, at, least, at least if it's part, in a public yeah. performance uh, venue, maybe Partly. not privately. Well, but here's the thing. If I wrote a song and I haven't yet recorded it or I haven't yet released it on an album, or even if I have, if I wrote a song and, I'm, and, I, um, and I don't want someone to record it, that's my prerogative to say you can't record it. And if somebody comes into a club where I'm performing and records without my permission, then even though they own the, rec- the video that they've made, I own a copyright in something that's embodied within that video, right? The song. And so I can go to YouTube and say, hey, take that down. It infringes my copyright. And YouTube basically has to take it down. Even if there's a, an argument to be made that it's fair use or something else like that, then right. the, the person who posts it gets to you know, argue, no, put it back up. And then YouTube points to them both and says, okay, let's you and him fight. You guys go figure it out and let us know. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and, uh, I've done that before, yeah. you know. And yeah. you know, if I, I've had that happen where we were filming a concert like a fundraiser and we had like three or four yeah. cameras going and it's good quality and then some Yahoo shows mm-hmm. up with their crappy phone and yeah. more importantly their crappy audio I mean that's that's what yeah. makes a quality uh, production if you probably know this well, it's not the, the good news, it's the yeah, audio the, is, the audio yeah I think the good news is people know a cell phone video when they see it and, and nobody expects perfection from that um, from the audio side of that and, and so no, they're but pretty it, forgiving but it, but it detracts from the quality of the product is what oh, I'm yeah, saying. Totally. And, oh, absolutely. And, that, and that's what most musicians, you know, I'm a musician. I deal with musicians. And, yep. you know, I hate musicians. I'm sorry. I'll just say it. Most of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the loyalty of a cockroach, Gordon, that's what I always say. The loyalty of a cockroach. But uh, it's like. There's okay, honor among yeah, thieves. There isn't among musicians. <laughs> there's not, man. They can't see past sunset with their vision, mm-hmm. most of them. You know, it's just like, really. What were you thinking? You know, you'd rather spend 400 bucks on a bag of weed than to get some good photos of your band or a video. Really? That's smart thinking. <laughs> Way to go. 
good good for you but you'll say okay do you have a you have a video you know so i can see where you're at or, or have an agent mm-hmm. hire you or something yeah we got a promo video and it's some crappy yeah. smartphone in the back of the room sounds like shit uh, it looks like shit and that's yeah. what you're hoping to make money from seriously <laughs> you know right. really but um you know something else that I, I liked about you and your business um was a section on your website about uh helping uh, theatrical productions get up and running yeah that's pretty cool i like i like that um and the reason it spoke to me is because i actually wrote a play on the oh. story of ccr okay and oh. I, I don't really call call it a play play um, it's mostly, if you've ever seen something like Love Janice, Gordon, or some of those sure. musical things, it's mostly driven, not always, but by the songs, right? Without the hits, yeah. there is no story, right? So Correct. I kind of borrowed off of that. And with CCR, and I have a CCR tribute band, and they had a lot of hits. I mean, great classic tunes. So basically, it's just a new way to uh, yeah. piece these things together with a multimedia production. So is, is, it a, is it a jukebox musical? Is that what you would call it? or? Um, I don't know what I would call it. Um, okay. We actually debuted it a couple of years ago in San Diego. We had a, a nice. fundraiser, and the client really liked it and had the resources. He put this huge video wall. This nice. place called Humphreys by the Bay. It was cool. So yeah. I'm I'm a filmmaker, so I did a multimedia presentation to go with it. Cool. But what I learned, so so it's yeah, it's mostly driven by the hits, of course, and it's a one man play where there's a fictional character who is a truck driver and I knew these guys growing up and he tells her story from from oh, nowhere cool. through the Vietnam days, whatever. So they're really yeah. short little vignettes between the hits, basically. Um, but what I found out, um, besides how hard it is to raise money <laughs> for a play, yeah. <laughs> I, found that, I found that out. But um, if you have living people um, that the play is about, there's something called grand rights. Do you know this one? Well, Where, grand rights is about the music rights. Yeah, the you, we're talking about whether they're living or not. The sometimes the heirs have the right to control uh, whether you can record their songs and things like that. But uh, I yeah, thought grand it was right. about I was I thought it was about telling somebody's story without their permission. Mm. Or, uh, but but I don't know. See, I this, no, that's a different I, thing called the right of publicity. Is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, so what I rights, what I know about yes, go. go. So grand rights uh, is the right to perform a song, basically originally originally songs that were written as parts of musicals. Uh, the grand right is the right to perform those songs within the musical on a, on a live stage. Nowadays okay. we also talk about the theatrical or dramatic performing rights, which would deal with a song that wasn't originally written as a musical, um, you know, now being used on stage in a show. That would also be considered grand rights. But what you're talking about is the right of a uh, of a person to control the use of their name or likeness in in the telling of a story. And um, yes, you, you mentioned yes. Love Janice. I'll tell you that while Love Janice was in development, I was working with another team that was also developing a Janice Joplin musical. And we, oh, wow. uh, yeah, we came to the conclusion that we didn't need her family's permission to portray her in the show. Really, that's covered really? by the free speech. Yeah, that's free. That's First Amendment wow. free speech. We can tell your story that's if interesting. you want. Um, that's interesting. However. Because they had their own show in development and didn't want us doing it, they wouldn't let us record, or they wouldn't let us uh, use any of the songs that Janice ah. wrote in her show, well, in the show. Now, fortunately, that'll, that'll, client, that'll do it. <laughs> well, that'll do it. But fortunately, Janice didn't write most of the famous songs that she was known for. She sang well, a lot true. of other people's music. <laughs> so that's true. The show went on, and it was a, it was a modest success. And then Love Janice came around and, and uh, ate its lunch. 
So. Yeah, well, what I was told, I don't, I don't know if you know the story of CCR. I know it really well. Sure. No, it was pretty, pretty salty, pretty yeah. bad, bad blood, bad feelings, mm-hmm. lawsuits, all kinds of crap. Yeah. In fact, John Fogarty may be the only artist that I, can, that I know of that got sued for sounding too much like himself. You know that story? <laughs> right. I do know that, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. It's like it's like me suing Gordon Firemark because you look too much like Gordon Firemark or something. Right. You know, it's like well, what nuts. So that's how that's how nasty that all got. Yeah. So and yeah. it, and it's still bad blood between the the surviving mm-hmm. band members. You got John Fogarty yeah. and the, and his two uh, yeah. ex players. So that and, so that will make it very hard to do a show about them because they will all you know have their own versions of the story and they'll accuse you of defamation right. or something like that if you tell it right. a little differently in a way that maybe reflects poorly on one of them. So yeah, uh, while, I knew, I knew, you don't I, necessarily need their permission, you probably try to get it so that you don't get sued. Well, uh, well, you know what? I knew all about that, and the way I did it, the way I wrote it, I sidestepped all that with a fictional character who's just telling the uh, facts. That's that's right. it, because because I, I knew about it. In fact, here's a little tidbit for you. Um, um, the first singer I used for my CCR tribute, he was singing with Creedence Revisited, with two of the original members for the last few years. Oh. So that's that's a hard. I, I can't. I'm a I'm a pretty good singer, but I can't sing like that. You know that kind of yeah. range, all that mm. dirt grit. It, take, it takes somebody special to be able to do that yeah. stuff, that CCR stuff. But that was right. one of them. And I, I work with really good musicians. I mean, I got no time for crappy musicians. I don't like them okay. at all. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's nice to um, to to hear somebody who's really good at what they do. That's kind of a get out of jail free card well, with them. You about now lawsuits, trademarks, legal actions can get very very expensive right? Uh, whatever yep. it is. I once heard about, I, I listen to all the conspiracy shows, all that stuff mm. uh, from both sides. I, I, I look at liberal websites, conservative. I don't really, I'm just trying to find out what, what the really, what really happened here. Basically. Yeah. That's me. But, um, there was one person on there that had to fight the U S government for okay. whatever reason. And he had started, I thought it was interesting. It was an insurance like subscription base or something that people could buy into, and in case they had to go up against the government, they could tap into this uh, fund to yeah. find resources so it wouldn't bankrupt them. Oh. Because that's usually what happens, right? When these people go yeah. up against the U.S. government, they don't have the money, right? They mm-hmm. don't they don't have the resources, and, and they, they go broke. So I wonder if there's anybody doing something like that with uh, trademarks and patents, a subscription-based service. Where inventors well, or or writers anybody can can yeah. pay a you know nominal amount every month, mm-hmm. and then if and when some big lawsuit or something appears, then they have that financial backing without having yeah. to go bankrupt themselves. Have you heard of such a thing? You know, I'm not aware of any programs that cover and protect the the trademark owners against you know the the need that they might have to sue somebody. Uh, certainly, there are insurance companies that cover. The, the defendants in these cases, you know, there's errors and omissions insurance and, and uh, advertising injury insurance and things like that. So um, it's an interesting idea, uh, some kind of so. a business model. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are prepaid legal services and things like that, but I don't think that would cover the, the whole lawsuit. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting idea. Maybe some enterprising securities broker or someone can come up with some kind of a, a bond fund that would finance lawsuits like this or something. I don't know. Uh, I, of course, I have then no you idea. Up, yeah. You end up sharing your claims with with non parties, and it yeah, gets tricky there that, too. But that's true. How do they decide where to allocate those funds? Right. Right. On which ones? Yeah, I don't know. 
Um, are, are, so you're in Los Angeles. Are you gonna are you are you set up in any other entertainment cities like Nashville or New York or Chicago? Uh, no. Or you have partners? Uh, no. I mean, I've got tendrils out there, and I've got contacts in many other cities that I can sort of affiliate with. I have folks in New York and Florida and uh, and Texas. Uh, not so much Nashville, or but I don't do that much in the music industry. That Nashville would be a thing for me. So, um, and, yeah. and colleagues all over the place. You know, we we team up when we need to. But um, no, I'm I'm based here in Los Angeles, where I basically grew up, and uh, uh, you know, I'm a showbiz guy, so I'm in the right place. Yeah, you are um, for sure. And and being with intellectual property law, you're even more in the right place, in yeah, my opinion. Absolutely. And all the all streaming content happening now. Oh my God. You know, and, and, and AI stuff, deep fakes, we haven't talked about it, but yeah. come on. You know, this is really coming into its own. With it sure is. Some, somebody using somebody's image without their permission and making it do what they want, basically. You can still tell mm -hmm. right now, but man, it's getting better by the by the day, it seems like, right? With some of these yes. deep fakes. It's really oh, yeah. hard to tell, but you know, I, I, have you had anything coming your way that, in that regard yet, Gordon? You know, I haven't. I'm not a litigation lawyer. I mostly do deals, and so I don't hear about those uh, kinds of lawsuits until they happen, <laughs> you know, and and get reported in the media. But uh, no, that's uh, that's a whole interesting area. You know, where does the line between reality and fiction happen, and uh, how does that impact people's reputations? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to be seeing a lot about that in the next few years. I don't know what we're doing on time. We had about an hour, so we got to plug your your firemark.com is your website, yep. Gordon. Actually, yeah, you know, if people want to know more about me and what I do, the best place to go is gordonfiremark.com, which has links to all of my my law practice of course, but all of my online courses and other materials that I have available as well, and my ebooks and everything else. So, yeah, gordonfiremark.com is sort of the the hub. That is the best name I ever heard for a uh, trademark <laughs> attorney, by the way. I'm not uh, lying. That is a fabulous, <laughs> fabulously good name for a trademark. It means look out. This is serious stuff, <laughs> and yep. it's it's kind of it's kind of I don't imbues a sense of 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 fire and also trademarks somehow. Yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. Well, as you as you, you know, well know. Yeah, well, the history of fire marks. Um, you know, I don't I don't know how we ended up with the name. I'm just going to say thanks, mom and dad, for giving me the name, but. Uh, uh, you know, the history of fire marks is that um, back in, in England in the pre-1900s, uh, you, you know, if you had fire insurance, it was a particular company, and each of the insurance companies had their own fire brigade. And so they would give you if, you, if you bought insurance from the company, they'd give you this bronze plaque to put on the outside of your house. If your house caught fire and you called on the fire brigade, they would come out and check to make sure you were insured before they put out the fire. And if wow. you didn't have the right plaque on your house, you didn't get your fire. Your house was allowed to burn down. So that was cool. That was the fire mark. Was that bronze plaque? Wow, who knew? <laughs> That's interesting. So it's it's sort of an early version of a trademark, right? The, this company putting their brand on your house so that they would know where who was supposed to protect it. All right, Gordon Firemark, thanks so much for being on the Rock and Roll Kitchen. You can find Gordon at gordonfiremark.com. Thanks for having me on. Come on up to my kitchen. You don't know. You're missing Jerry White. 